This is the word to stand on for life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The word to stand on for life is a radio ministry of Calvary Chapel in San Antonio. A live call-in show here to help you answer your questions about the Bible and how to apply the Word to your daily life. For more information on Calvary Chapel, visit our website, calvarysa.com. Get your Bible questions ready and call in now to 210-340-9585. It's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome to the program. It's Christmas week here on The Word to Stand On for Life. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas. And this is a program, as you know by now, dedicated to taking your phone calls and answering your Bible questions, life questions, anything that's on your heart or mind. I'll do the best that I can. You need only to call us. You can dial 210-340-9585. That's 340-9585. If you're outside the local San Antonio area, you can call toll-free at 877-630-KSLR. Numerically, that's 630-5757. You can email questions to us by emailing questions at calvarysa.com or you can use our free Calvary Chapel of San Antonio mobile app. Uh, If you are driving in your car today, the safest way to call is use the free KSLR mobile app. Just hit the call now banner at the top of the screen and you will be connected directly to our studio producer. Hope you had a great day at church yesterday. We did here at Calvary Chapel and it was our Christmas message. It was the day yesterday we celebrate Christmas uh, and I trust that was probably the case all over the area. So hope you had a really, really great day at church yesterday. Hope you were blessed. Hey, a couple of scheduling things just to keep you informed because this during the holidays, a little bit of week, we will not be having our men's, women's, and youth Bible studies for the next two Mondays, tonight and next week. Um, we're on a holiday break, uh, so there's nothing going on here at the church tonight. It will resume uh, on the first Monday in uh, January. Um, also this week, we have live programs uh, today, tomorrow, and Wednesday, and then we will be um, um, with some rebroadcasts uh, Thursday and Friday, Christmas Eve and Christmas. We are having our Christmas Eve services uh, Thursday at 4 o'clock and 5.30, um, and uh, you'd be more than welcome to join us there as well. Um, let's get to some questions while we're waiting for... phone just rang. we got Dustin on line one from Yano, Texas. I hope I said that right, Dustin. From Yano, Texas? Hello? Yes, sir. Yes, Lano. Uh, Lano. Oh, Lano. Okay. Yeah, Lano. <laughs> but yes, okay. uh, it is pronounced uh, Yano, uh, but nobody says that. Um, okay. <laughs> my question is about Jeremiah twenty-two thirty and Jeconiah's curse over the line of King David. My question is, how come nobody brings that up? in the reasoning of, like, why the the miracle birth of Jesus Christ. 
I mean, I've, it's only been since the past year that I've been listening to radio on air that I've even heard of Jeconiah's curse. And, uh, that was just today, to be honest. Oh, really? Okay. Um, let me, it's, it's a little bit complicated to explain. Uh, it's a little easier in a Bible study when you've got Bible verses to go through, Dustin. Um, uh, let me just start from the beginning. We, we know from First Chronicles chapter 3 that um, there were seven sons uh, from different women. Um, we also know, uh, seven sons of Jack and I, we also know that none of them would ever inherit the throne um, he would be the last son of David to be a king. Now, that didn't end the Davidic line. Uh, and this is where it gets a little complicated, so please bear with me. Uh, Jesus is the son of David. He is the son of David. Um, but if he was to sit on the throne of David and his descendants, or his descendants, and that's a reference to Jesus, he cannot come through uh, Jehoiakim's line, Jehoiakim with an N line. Um, we also know that Jehoiakim is listed in Joseph's genealogy in Matthew chapter 1. Um, and we obviously know that Joseph was not Jesus' father. So the question is, how does he come from David if not through Joseph? Well, that's where we have to go to Luke chapter 3 and see that um, his mother Mary, whose genealogy is provided in Luke 3, avoids Jehoiakim by being a descendant of David's son Nathan instead of Solomon, and that entitles Jesus to his seat on the royal throne. And uh, that's where we get into the next chapter and the branch. But, but um, Zechariah, Jeconiah, was just one of those um, disobedient kings and was cursed. Um, you, you know, let, let me refer you also, uh, Dustin, to our website. You can go to our Bible studies uh, in Jeremiah to get a, a fuller uh, explanation of that. But um, the, the the lineage or the genealogy of Mary sort of solves that problem, not through Solomon, David's son, but through Nathan, David's son. And that way Jesus could find um, uh, his, his way to the throne of David forever and ever. I know that's a, a, a poor explanation, but this is really... Um, uh, a horrible, um, um, horribly difficult and complicated thing. Um, this Jeconiah is known by three names, Jehoiachin, the one I was referring to, and also Kaniah and Jeconiah. And he was a, um, a really, really terrible and disobedient king. So Dustin, um, maybe go to calvarysa.com and you can um, look that up in our studies uh, both in the genealogies in Luke and um, Matthew, uh, or you can do it just going to our studies in Jeremiah, which was, if I remember it, about 10 years ago. Sorry, I couldn't be more clear than that. It's just a really complicated mess to explain. Thank you, Dustin. Thanks for the phone call. Here is a question that comes from Annette. When Christian couples divorce and remarry each other, should they include the years of their first marriage when telling others how long they've been together? Also, with the same scenario, should that couple still celebrate their initial marriage? Um, you know, Annette, I, I don't think there's a right or wrong here. 
it's sort of how they feel. We have a, a, a family in our church who um, has been, uh, was married, divorced, and then remarried. Uh, and it was wonderful to watch God sort of bring them back together. Uh, and, and clearly it was the Lord doing it. So, um, you know, I think it's like any other sin. They messed up. They divorced. Uh, I think they're entitled to celebrate um, both their old marriage and the new marriage as well, uh, just because it's a reminder of the goodness of God. But I don't think there's any legalistic rule here. I don't think there's anything that says one is right and one is wrong. Uh, I just think especially, and you know me, I'm always trying to uh, look for opportunities to witness to people. Uh, I think um, that um, it's a wonderful opportunity to witness. And somebody says, so so how long have you been married? And you can look at somebody and say, well, you know, the first time or now? And and then you can tell them what Jesus did. So I, I don't think it matters what time they use. The old is gone, the new has come. But we also know that God is a God that renews things. And uh, the marriage that I'm thinking of, Annette, is a marriage that uh, has brought so much joy to so many people. So many people that I just don't think there's any wrong way that they can do it. Thank you for the question. I appreciate it very, very much. Charles wants to know, Pastor Ron, do you have an update on the churches that are meeting in violation of the state and local orders to do so? Uh, Charles, I assume you're you're speaking about some of the earlier programs that we had. Uh, I was asking for prayer. Uh, Most of the churches that I know are still meeting. Um, Many of them are meeting uh, with very, very large crowds still in California, while California seems to be shutting down um, um, again. Um, The churches that uh, I'm aware of are not doing so. Uh, One of the churches that I asked for prayer, Charles, was uh, Calvary Chapel in San Jose. The pastor's name there is Mike McClure. And they have been fined an enormous amount of money um, and, you know, obviously that's being contested and uh, and appealed, uh, but uh, they have continued to meet. They're a church of about 700 people, and um, that's their attendance typically on a Sunday, and they have continued to meet. They have no possible way that they could afford to pay the fines that have been levied against them. So they are now, with the aid of, of uh, free legal services, um, they're still fighting it. Uh, John MacArthur's church is still meeting, and there has apparently been no change. There's still an enormous crowd showing up. Another Calvary Chapel in Chino Hills uh, with Jack Hibbs uh, is meeting. Um, But I think it varies from church to church and area to area. I will say this. We got really um, unexpected news, a a wonderful victory in, of all places, Oregon. Uh, We got several Calvary Chapels in Oregon. And one of the Calvaries uh, uh, in in Oregon um, started to appeal, and the state sort of just dropped things. In 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 view of the recent federal orders, um, they just said uh, we have decided to change our uh, our command to limit the number of worshipers in a church, and it was a very very small number, uh, ten to twenty people, I think, was the number. Um, we are changing those two suggestions and leaving it to the churches. And, of course, that's because uh, the First Amendment has been upheld um, um, every time it's it's gotten to an appeals court. Uh, so Oregon sort of just dropped it. And so uh, I, I think what we'd see is very little change. 
Um, Charles, you know, I was sharing with somebody just this weekend that uh, for us to be living in Texas, we have a, a Christian governor. Um, uh, you know, people are trying to be safe. At the same time, we're not running from this uh, virus. Um, and uh, I think churches here who choose to, to open certainly have the right to do so. And I wish everybody would open. I, I just think we need to get back. People need to be in church. The um, um, psychological effect, the the long-term pounding that this virus and all of the, the restrictions have on people is enormous. And so um, I, I think uh, things are not, they have not changed much. Um, but but I, I, haven't, I haven't talked to anybody uh, since the weekend services, but I'm pretty certain that uh, they've been meeting uh, pretty much all along. And they're winning every time they get to court. They're winning. Um, and that's just the way it is. California has chosen to fight this tooth and nail to the end. The state that has no money, the state that's economy, whose economy is completely tanked. Um, and they're still choosing to fight their own battles. So I hope that makes sense to you. And pray for churches. Churches need to be open. Churches are essential. Here's a question from Aaron. He says, I know from 1 Timothy 2 that God wants everyone to be saved. And since no one can resist God's will, I assume everyone eventually will be saved. Aaron, that's exactly the wrong conclusion. Uh, that's not an assumption. Um, we can and we do resist God's will all the time. Uh, Paul says, don't quench the Spirit of God. That's resisting the will of God. Um, we know that the road to destruction is wide and will travel and many will find it. The road to salvation is narrow and few find it. That wide, well-traveled road is a road of people resisting the will of God. So I think your conclusion that no one can resist God's will is where you are in error here. It's true that God wants everyone to be saved. Not only does Paul say that in writing to Timothy, but Peter says God is unwilling that any should perish, but for all to come to salvation. And yet we know that lots and lots of people are spending eternity in hell, being tormented. Jesus spoke about it. We have records of it throughout. Jesus said even of Judas, a Jew, that it would be better had he never been born. Uh, in his constant battles with the religious leaders, he talked about their 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 ultimate spiritual end. Um, so not everybody's going to get saved. In fact, almost everybody is, relatively speaking, the 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 much larger number of people, Aaron, are going to spend eternity being tormented because um, they did resist God's will unto death. And I think that's the thing we need to remember: God could force everybody, Aaron, but that wouldn't be love. Not on his part, nor would it be loving toward God if people had no choice in the matter. So God has always given us a choice. He gave it to um, Lucifer and the other angels, and a third of those angels resisted the will of God. That's what free will does. And all we have to do is look around at this world that we live in, and we see an entire world not just resisting the will of God, but out and out opposing the will of God as enemies of God. And so um, imagine how it breaks God's heart. Jesus said, looking out over Jerusalem in the Olivet Discourse, or just following the Olivet Discourse, 
They said, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, if you knew, if you only knew that I've come to gather you as a mother hen gathers her chicks. In other words, he had so much better, but because she resisted, she too would be crushed. And of course, that was a direct prophecy of an event that would happen in about 38 years from Jesus' death uh, with the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple, complete destruction of the temple in 70 A.D., so I I um, hope you understand. We do, we can, and we will continue to resist the will of God. Three four zero ninety five eighty five. Here's a question from Roger. He says, "If a gay person is in a faithful relationship with someone they love, how could God object to it, especially given the way Christians have treated their marriage vows?" Um, Roger, obviously you're not a believer. I get that. Um, And I also will own uh, our responsibility as Christians to have trampled on our marriage vows. Uh, Nobody is saying that Christians are better than other people or even that, especially in cases like our marriage vows, that we behave more honorably than other people. Um, God rejects the way we deal with marriage, how disposable it's become. Um, Roughly 50% of Christian marriages end in divorce. That is not only a tragedy, but it is an indictment against individual Christians who make that choice. It's not an issue of salvation. Jesus said that Moses permitted certificates of divorce because of the hardness of men's hearts, and our hearts are still hard. We do what we want instead of what God wants, and you are right, and we as believers need to own the shabby way that we treat our marriage vows. However, remember, Roger, God is still the one that makes the rules. And he, as the one who gave us our sexuality. As the creator of humankind, as the one Jesus who holds all things together, he calls the shots. He's in charge. And we make a choice. Are we going to follow the rules? Or are we going to rebel against the rules? And one of God's rules is that people of the same gender cannot be involved sexually, period. Now, we've decided we don't care what God wants. That's the world that we live in. But that doesn't make us immune from the consequences of those choices. So if a gay person is in a gay relationship, faithful or not, and they think they love somebody, that doesn't exempt them from suffering the consequences of their sin. Now, their sin is not going to be... um, they're, they're, the consequence is not going to be because they're, they're in a gay relationship. Their consequences in eternity are going to be because they rejected Jesus Christ. And anybody who lives in a willfully disobedient relationship is flaunting their nose at God. And the Bible says every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is the Lord to the glory of God our Father. 
And on that day, they're not going to explain, but I loved him and I was attracted to him or to her. So homosexuals simply have to decide, do I want my flesh to be satisfied here or do I want to go to heaven for eternity? And it's simply not possible for them to have both. And Roger, the only way, as an unbeliever, the only way you're going to understand that is to come to know Jesus. Come to know him. And if you're unwilling to do that, then whether you're involved in a gay relationship or not, apart from Jesus Christ, you too are going to spend eternity in hell. The really good news for you, Roger, is that Jesus is offering you, even now, He's offering you salvation. He's offering you forgiveness of sins. All you've got to do is admit that you're a sinner. That you're separated from God. And then ask him to not just forgive you, but give you new life. And if you ask that, if you're genuine in wanting to find who God is, he'll reveal himself to you. And then when the Holy Spirit comes to live in you, you'll begin the process of discovering why God objects to these kinds of relationships. I want to make something really, really clear to you, Roger, and to everybody listening. And if this was a question about a heterosexual relationship that wasn't covered in marriage, my answer would be exactly the same. People who live like that will not inherit the kingdom of God. And unfortunately, you don't look at Christians to set the standard. You look at Jesus. He set the standard. And it was always his intention. Genesis, I'm sorry, Matthew chapter 19, referring to the Genesis account. In the beginning, God made the two one. And it's his intent that every marriage stays together. Sometimes it's pretty nervy for we who are Christians to say, no, God... Marriage is important to God. We have to honor our marriage vows when in fact half of the Christians in this world don't. So Roger, the only way you're going to find this out is to open your heart to Jesus. Until you do, then you're going to be convinced by this world or by your own desires to do what you want to do instead of what God wants to do. I'm just here to warn you that if you make that choice, there is an eternal price to pay for that and there's no escaping it. It's appointed unto man once to die and then face the judgment. So I hope that makes sense to you. we got three minutes. Here's a question I can do from Tracy. He or she says, capital punishment, how is it consistent with grace? Um, you know, from the beginning, the Lord established that if a man takes another man's life, he will pay with his own life. That goes all the way back to Genesis and has continued uh, all the way through the Bible, Old Testament and New, into Romans. Um, God gave the government the sword. He did it to keep justice. It is a just thing to do. So capital punishment is something, uh, Tracy, that, that, that God understands. And not only did God understand, he executed. Go to Acts chapter 5 and read the story of Ananias and Sapphira. A husband and wife who, when the church was in its infancy stages, the beautiful, pure bride of Christ, one of the very first and most vicious attacks came from within. Ananias and Sapphira 
wanted everybody to think they were spiritual and generous, but they wanted to hold back some of the money and they lied to God. And because it was a one-time deal, the beginning of the church, this was the first time this kind of lying and hypocrisy entered the church. I wish it was the last time as well. But God put them both to death. Ananias first, and later he gave Sapphira an opportunity to repent. Did you and your husband sell it for such and such? And the answer was yes, and she fell down dead as well. That's capital punishment. There is a sin unto death, the Apostle John writes. Ananias and Sapphira were an example of that sin. But remember, grace and justice are twins, just opposite sides of twins. And the only reason Christians aren't judged by the holy justice of God is because Jesus has already taken the judgment that we deserve. But capital punishment, it may not be administered fairly in the world that we live in. We live in a fallen world. But when Jesus returns and rules and reigns in the millennium for 1,000 years, Capital punishment will be a part of everyday life. When people rebel against God, then perfect justice will be served and there won't be a, a single voice of dissent. Tracy, thanks for the question. We've got 30 minutes left in our show, 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. This is the Word of Santa for Life. I'll be back in two minutes. Don't have time to call into the Word to Stand On for Life? No problem. If you've got questions, you can email them to Pastor Ron at PastorRonKSLR at gmail.com. That's PastorRonKSLR at gmail.com. Back to the word to stand on for life. We're taking your calls at 340-9585 or toll free 877-630-KSLR. Now, here's Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome back to the program. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh, 340-9585. Here's a question from our email inbox from Kirby. Uh, Paul's success in starting churches in most cities uh, he visited. Why didn't he stay and start one in Athens? And the reference course is Acts chapter 17, beginning in verse 15. You know, one of the things, Kirby, that we really have to remember is that Paul was um, being directed by the Holy Spirit. Um, his experience in Athens seemed to be, at least there are our uh, commentators who take him to task say, well, you know, he didn't do it the way he always did it, and, and his ministry in Athens was a failure. Uh, I, I absolutely don't believe that was the case. Uh, I just don't think there was anybody interested. You know, I say all the time, people say, well, how, how often should we tell people, when they stop listening, you stop talking? And I think what was very clear, abundantly clear, uh, in Athens at Mars Hill, um, was that nobody wanted to hear. You know, the the philosophers, the wise people of the day, they would gather together uh, regularly just to talk about new stuff, but they didn't really want answers. 
And I think the smart thing for Paul was to simply say, you know, we're going to turn and we're going to go to different places. And, of course, then he went to Berea and then to Thessalonica and some other places. Uh, He was actually in Athens sort of by accident. You'll remember, Kirby, the ministry uh, just prior to that hadn't gone well and uh, there were some riots, and it was dangerous for him. And, and so his um, traveling companions sort of sent him away to Athens just to chill. You know, take it easy, relax. We'll, we'll be there with you in just a few days. Don't get in any trouble. And Paul couldn't help himself. It's one of the funniest stories, at least funny to me. It's funny because he's walking around trying to take some time off, and he's seeing all of these idols all over the city. Now remember, this is a city that the people prided themselves on being intellectuals. And Paul saw nothing but idols. And I can just see him walking around the city, checking out these, these monuments. And finally, it's the straw that broke the camel's back. He saw one called to an unknown God. I call that the, in case I missed a God, God. And that's when he just couldn't take it anymore. So he went and found some people, went to the Areopagus and, uh, and, and told them about the real God. And he was very direct. But now God commands men everywhere to repent. And of course, they weren't interested in that. So uh, I just think it was not the Holy Spirit's plan for Paul to stay um, um, in, in, in Athens and plant a church. I, I think that's the, the easiest way to explain it. You know, I've had a lot of friends, Kirby, who uh, would go places to plant churches and end up in cities where they didn't expect to go. I just think it's one of those things when we, when we take a step out to go plant a church, if we're sensitive to the leading of the Holy Spirit, uh, I think God will eventually get us where we are. I know everybody waiting on the phone so I can tell a quick story. When Paul and I first came to uh, San Antonio all those years ago, now we were actually Calvary Chapel of San Antonio uh, before we ever got here, we were affiliated and 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 coming out to look at a place, and we knew nothing about San Antonio. By all means, we didn't know that this city was just built in circles, and we kept getting lost, and we had no idea what part of town we were in. Um, just we were looking for a hotel that would let our dogs stay with us, and we finally found one. Uh, I can see it out my back door. Uh, from from uh, the place that we ended up. Uh, and, of course, we ended up in Universal City, Texas, um, but we're still Calvary Chapel of San Antonio. Um, but, but God was clearly directing our steps because we had no earthly idea. And I think that's something that's really important when we uh, deal with um, the idea of where does God want us to do something. So I hope that makes sense to you, Kirby. Thanks for the question. Rob says, Pastor Ron, have you ever had to confront someone in your church because of sin? Uh, Rob, yes, all, regularly. Um, obviously, it is one of the least uh, fun things to do. It's one of those things that you got to do it uh, because the Lord commands us to do it. Uh, but we just don't ever get a positive response. Now, we've had people that we had to confront with sin and and, and tell them, you know, if you're going to live like this, you can't keep coming here. Um, Paul tells us to do that in his letter to the Corinthians. Uh, most of the time, they just go find another church. 
and other pastors don't check on people. I, I don't either, by the way. If somebody came to, sit, came to me and said, you know, I had a problem in another church, um, and, and I, I had to leave, well, well, then I probably would call the pastor and say, tell me what's going on so that we can talk about it. But these days, you know, you're afraid of getting sued, all those things. So it's just not something we do, and it's easy, as many churches as there are. It's easy for somebody just to leave their problems behind, not deal with the sin, and um, and, and and find somebody else, find another place to, to, to fellowship. That does not leave the pastor off the hook. And um, many, many times over the years, uh, only once or twice, I'm trying to think if it was maybe twice, have we had to announce to the church uh, why someone wasn't coming anymore? Um, after we approached them, um, we followed all the biblical steps, uh, and they were absolutely rebellious and defiant. Most of the time, Rob, when we sit down with somebody and say, you know, it's come to our attention, just kind of watching things, that this woman we thought was your wife or this man that we thought was your husband isn't somebody you're married to at all. And that's just one example. Um, usually they just leave, get mad at you and leave. But yeah, we've had to do it. And in fact, Rob, we're obligated to do it. We don't have an official church membership. So we don't make a covenant. I know some churches do. Um, we don't make a covenant with our people. We just uh, expect that if people say they're a Christian, they're going to behave like, like Jesus wants them to do it. And when they refuse, then we are accountable to God. What they do with it is between them and the Lord, and they're going to stand before him. But we've got to do the right thing. And that um, really does um, occur, and it occurs way more often than we would like. It's amazing. People love the church, love me, love the teaching. And then we call them on their sin and suddenly we're the worst people in the world. That's just part and parcel of doing business here. Hope that helps. Thank you. Benjamin says, In the light of the Genesis command to be fruitful and multiply, is it sinful for married couples today to choose not to have children? Um, Benjamin, no, I don't think it's sinful. Um, but, but I think it's a sin um, not to ask God what he wants. Um, you know, the, the the Bible says that children are a blessing from the Lord. I think we should want every blessing God has for us. And you're right, in this day and age, there are people that just don't want to have children. Either they're selfish uh, or or they're in such a, 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 a state of mind, you know, they don't want to bring a, a child into a world the way the world is now kind of thing. Um, I think everything that we do without inquiring of, of God is sinful. I think it ends up costing us a lot. But generally speaking, uh, it is a choice uh, that people are given the freedom to make. Um, and um, they're going to answer to God for it, just like they're going to answer to God for everything. But, um, you know, it, there's no commandment um, that says we have to. I think it's just the Genesis command. Uh, remember, there was nobody on the earth when, when God said to do that. Um, and we've been multiplying ever since. Uh, and I think couples get ripped off if they just out of hand reject having children. Uh, I think that's something that they really need to take before the Lord. You know, we have so many people, Benjamin, who 
who want babies and have difficulty having or can't have them at all. And uh, I think people don't realize what they're missing out on. So uh, it's not sinful, but but I think the the process of not consulting God on things like this is um, is sinful in and of itself. Hope that makes sense to you. Ed says, "What is being slain in the spirit, and is it biblical?" Uh, Ed, it's not biblical. It's absolute foolishness. Um, you, if you've been to churches that are sort of out of control. Um, with what I call charismania, um, you know, a, a, a preacher, somebody will slap them on the forehead and they'll fall down and, and they will appear to be sort of knocked out. Uh, they'll fall down and sometimes they'll be shaking and and um, other times they'll just be laying there as though they're frozen to the floor. Um, um, that's what being slain in the Spirit is, uh, but it is certainly unbiblical. There is no biblical precedent for it. In fact, it is um, so far out of bounds, and yet churches and Christians fall into it all the time. Now, let me say this, Ed. Um, I've been in a situation where I was uh, almost knocked over. It was a big crusade event by a very famous false teaching um, healing evangelist, and I say evangelist with a frown on my face. And he was throwing the power of the Holy Spirit all around the auditorium. And, and I just said, now I'm a new believer. I don't know what's right or what's wrong. But I just said, well, I'm going to find out if this is real. I'm not going to go down. And, and there was power. Now, I believe it was demonic power. It wasn't the power of God. Um, but um, if you are involved with the church, where they're practicing being slain in the spirit, you need to leave because it is not biblical. Um, I think it's dangerous spiritually, and it's just not something I think, Ed, that uh, any Christian should um, participate in. Unfortunately, a lot do. Mark says, Pastor Ron, in 1 Corinthians 7, Paul says that he is speaking and not the Lord. Does that change your mind uh, or I'm sorry, does that change your view of inspiration? Let me read the passage, and I'm going to go back to verse 10, uh, Mark. It says, To the married, I give this command, and then in parentheses, Not I, but the Lord. A wife must not separate from her husband. But if she does, she must remain unmarried, or else be reconciled to her husband, and a husband must not divorce his wife. And then in verse 12, he says, To the rest, I say this, and then in parentheses, says, I, not the Lord. If any brother has a wife who is not a believer and she's unwilling to live with him, he must not divorce her. So the the idea here is that um, when he's giving the command, he says, not I, but the Lord. This is an already previously stated command given by the Lord himself. Uh, all we have to do is go to the gospel accounts. And Jesus, um, in his commentary in, in Matthew ch- chapter 19, uh, marriage is forever. Keep your vow. Um, so the Lord saying this, and Paul had knowledge of that. When he gets down to the next verses, to the rest I say this, and then I not the Lord, um, he is making a conclusion based on what he said. This doesn't change my view of inspiration at all. In fact, we know that um, Paul was writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, um, but he didn't know it at the time. So Paul's saying, look, on the other question that you sent, 
um, we already have the Lord's command. He says, now, uh, we don't have a direct command from the Lord on this, so this isn't the Lord, this is me speaking. But again, we know that this is the Holy Spirit um, writing the Word, so this is just as much the Lord as if it was in red letters in your Bible. So, no, it doesn't change my view uh, of inspiration at all, nor should it change your view. Um, it's just one of those things, Mark, that that um, Paul was making a distinction between that which was already revealed by Jesus and that which was going to be new instruction. Uh, what Paul didn't say and couldn't say because he didn't know it at the time was that this is instruction uh, being revealed by the Holy Spirit even now. So I hope that makes sense. Hey, you know, I forgot to say something. Uh, since Thursday is Christmas Eve and we're going to be doing a, a repeat broadcast uh, Paula is going to be live in studio with me on Wednesday uh, here. So we'll have a, a revised date day edition uh, on Wednesday here uh, on the program. So Paula will be here. Okay, went from Paula to Paul. Paul says, what should I look for in choosing a church home? Um, Paul, the most important thing is um, uh, faithfulness to biblical doctrines. Um, a church that teaches the word. Remember, your point in going to church is to be equipped to do the work of ministry that God has called you to do. And the only way that you can be equipped is to be in the word, to learn who who uh, Jesus is by learning your Bible, uh, by learning about his character, his nature. Uh, he'll direct your steps, but, but Bible teaching is the only way that happens. So that's the most important thing. You certainly don't want um, churches with aberrant doctrine, you don't want churches that tickle your ears. You know, they tell funny stories or, or sit you down and just make you feel good about yourself no matter what kind of life you're living. Um, uh, you don't want churches that that are out of control in terms of their practice. So it needs to be a biblical church. And every church will say we're biblical, but, but I'm talking about a church that teaches the Bible. The second thing is you want an opportunity to use the gifts God has given you to serve that church. So when you find a church, you want to find an opportunity to minister in that church. Now, whatever your gifting is, now that doesn't mean if you think you're gifted to be a Bible teacher that right away you should step in to teach the Bible, but it does mean that you should immediately begin getting involved in service so that, that you can evaluate the church, but more importantly, the church and the leadership can evaluate you and recognize your gifts. You know, we just last week... Um, uh, ordained a man uh, as a pastor who's been with us now for about three years. And um, from the very beginning, um, I mean, he never told me he wanted to be a pastor. In fact, he didn't know he wanted to be a pastor. Um, but from the very beginning, it was clear to me that God had given this man exceptional gifts. And I just watched him and watched him. I watched the interaction between him and his wife. Um, I watched his children um, we started involving them in some things. We have a pastor's uh, discipleship class here. Uh, he was involved. Uh, he, they were involved in that. Uh, and I had an opportunity to listen to him. He was coming to prayer, uh, corporate prayer, and I, I really get to learn a lot about a guy's heart, uh, anybody's heart, when we pray together. Um, and it just became clear. After about a year, it became clear that, uh, that the Lord was, was preparing him 
um, to, to move into a pastoral role. For me, um, I felt so blessed because, uh, you know, when, when God gives you a tool, you want to use it. Uh, and I remember the day that I went to him and I said, you know, um, here's what I want you to do. No, no explanation. Uh, I'd like you to take over the usher ministry. He'd been serving the usher ministry. I'd like you to take over the usher ministry. And and without blinking an eye, I said, okay. I said, here are some things that, that I want done there. But other than that, you know, put your fingerprint on it. Um, and then, I don't know, another six or eight months went by and we talked again. And I told him that I think God's preparing him to be a pastor. And he was a little shaken by that. But God made that clear to him over the next six or seven months. So it was about a three-year period and, and he was ordained as a pastor. I made a great choice. I mean, I really made a great choice. So um, that's the kind of opportunity you want to find when you're looking for a church home. Look for a place that you can serve. Look for a place that you can be fed. Um, of lesser importance, but still important. Make sure it's a church that reflects the nature and the character of Jesus. Make sure it's a loving church. And the Lord will let you know. The one thing you don't want to do, Paul, is find a church that fits your needs. And it's the completely the wrong approach to finding a church. What you would do then is um, simply find a church whose needs you could meet. So I hope that makes sense to you. Good luck, Paul. Three four zero ninety five eighty five. Now the phones are going to be quiet all week. It always is this way on uh, on uh, the week before Christmas and then between Christmas and New Year's. So um, if you get the opportunity, if you're not busy, give us a call and ask a question. Here's an anonymous question: um, What would you do if you found out someone in your church was not participating in communion? Uh, anonymous. I, I I would talk to them if I knew about it. But let me let me say this. I'm the pastor, um, the kind of pastor that before we partake of communion, I warn people. One, if you're here and you're not saved, you shouldn't be taking communion. It's a family celebration. And then I say, if you're here and you are a believer, but you're not living in obedience to God, in other words, if there's willful sin in your life and you're not going to repent right now and make a change, then you ought not to take communion. And I appreciate it when people take it seriously enough that when the, the elements come by, they won't uh, participate simply because their heart's not right with God. Now, what, what I want them to do, of course, is to get right with God. And every real believer ought to be able to say right then and there, okay, I'm being convicted. I'm, I, I, I'm being told not to come to the table. And Jesus, I don't want to do this again. So please forgive me. And then they can come to the table, I always say, as a guest of honor. Um, but but I'm the one that tells them, don't partake of communion if you're living in willful sin. Um, we have um, Paul's letter to the Corinthians when he says that because of their abuses of communion, some in Corinth were sick and some had even died because they were taking of communion in an unworthy manner. So, Anonymous, I think uh, it's, a, it's a wise thing. Um, if it was just somebody and I knew them to be a believer... And it came to my attention that they didn't partake of communion. Uh, I'd give them a call or ask them to come in and talk to me. And we would, um, from that point forward, we would just simply talk about what's going on. 
you didn't take him. Oh, my heart wasn't right. Well, why didn't you just get right? Why didn't you say, God, I'm sorry, please forgive me. Uh, you don't want to take communion if you're angry at your spouse. You don't want to take communion if you've been unkind to the kids. You know, you, you just the, the whole idea is understanding what an honor and a privilege it is to come to Jesus' table and realize that it's holy ground. And the way that we deal with our sin allows us to come justified just as if we'd never sinned. So uh, that actually happens here, and, and we do it. I think uh, it's a wise thing. When somebody tells me, oh, my heart's not right with God, I'll ask him, are you working on it? I mean, what is your response to it? And uh, I'll wait for the answer. This will be the last question of the day. We're almost out of time. It's from Austin. He said, Pastor Ron, would you discuss antinomianism, please? Um, antinomianism is um, uh, the man or the woman that says, you know, we're not under law, so I can do whatever I want. You know, Paul, in writing to, to the church in Rome, after this long, beautiful exposition on grace, he says, what shall we say then? Shall we keep on sinning? You know, where, where sin abounds, grace all the more abounds. What then shall we say? Shall we keep on sinning? And then he says, by no means. And that's a better translation. But I like what the King James says because the King James says, God forbid. And says that because God forbids it. So antinomianism is simply, well, you know, we're saved by grace. God love, love, love. And so I can do what I want. I'm not under law, so I can do anything that I want to do. That's what antinomianism is. And it is an overwhelming abuse of grace uh, Paul calls it trampling on the grace of God. And that's sort of the, the over-the-top reaction of uh, professing Christians throughout the history of the church. You know, Austin, um, uh, anybody who can make a comment like that, well, I know I shouldn't do this, but uh, I'm saved by grace and God's forgiven me and I'm going to go to heaven. That's a person that really doesn't know Jesus at all. Obviously, they know about him, but they don't know him. So, um, um, you know, we live obedient lives. At least we're supposed to live obedient lives. And the man or the woman who indulges their flesh rather than than submits to the will of God doesn't understand uh, the, the purpose of God uh, for their lives in the least. So that's what antinomianism is. Um, Often you see it in in what I call free grace or cheap grace churches. Um, well, since you're forgiven, God doesn't care what you do. He cares very, very much what we do, Austin. So uh, just stay focused on your Bible. Read Romans uh, from 3 to Romans through Romans chapter 6, and you'll see um, Paul's position. Thank you guys for tuning in today. You've been listening to The Word to Stand Up for Life. We've got two days left in the week, uh, Christmas week. May the Lord bless you and keep you. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas. Lord willing, I'll be back tomorrow at 4 o'clock on AM 630 The Word. We'll see you then. Thanks for spending this time with Calvary Chapel's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The Word to Stand On for Life is on every weekday afternoon at 4, and Pastor Ron invites you to find out more about Calvary Chapel at calvarysa.com. 
The Word to Stand On for Life was sponsored by Calvary Chapel of San Antonio. Calvary.